love books. You know, sometimes I'm like, books are my friends, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Completely understandable. Some books can be our friends. Books are the best. So this is David Sedaris is somebody I should read. Yeah, I'm I'm shocked that you haven't read anything by him right now. Uh, just up front, I will be honest that most of what I read is um, genre fiction. I do not get into a whole hell of a lot of whatever this person writes. I'm just excited for you. I wish that I could like watch you read his book and see the joy. So which one do you recommend that I'm going to actually read and it's going to be what you're hoping for? When you are engulfed in flames or Me Talk Pretty One Day. I like the title of Me Talk Pretty One Day much better than the other. Me Talk Pretty One Day is probably my favorite one. When I was practicing my audio work, I read his biographies and his like short essays to help me. Okay, so you know what I'm going to do right now, just because I don't want you to be disappointed in me? I'm looking at Me Talk Pretty One Day on chaptersindigo.com. Please sponsor us. <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't the only large Canadian bookstore want to uh, sponsor a dork-centric podcast that started less than a month ago? Now with 45 unique downloaders. More. More. 65. Yeah, somewhere, oh. somewhere closer to that. It's just like, he's so funny. And you know what I love about him is that he's constantly editing his work. Like, um, if ever you see him doing a reading, you can see him editing his manuscripts as he goes. Like, he's always, always working on them. So he's using sort of like a comedian might on stage, like working the material as he reads yeah. it out loud. Interesting. He's constantly workshopping. And my other favorite thing about him, he has such severe... OCD. That's what you love about him is that he has OCD. Makes him a little more relatable. <laughs> but he uh, he lives in the UK right now and he goes for these epically long walks because he has to get a certain number of steps each day. And so he goes on these like four hour walks and while he's out there he picks up trash because may as well. That's the opposite of what I do. I go for a walk every day. I need to get 10,000 steps and I drop litter. You absolutely do not do that. Every block. I take a bag full of garbage and I just drop <laughs> a piece every five to 10 steps. Like a breadcrumb. And it works in a little bread trail. Yeah. Just in case I can't find my way back home. So you just have a really bad memory. Uh, but mostly, mostly to hurt the earth. Ah, yes. That's, that's what I think about. Yeah, Ben, that guy hates the earth. Yeah. Oh, earth. He's, he's picked up so much garbage in his town that the, the city council named a garbage truck after him. And who doesn't want that? I mean, if that's not like the, like, just so cute. It reminds me of how John Oliver last season got a sewage treatment plant named after him. Yeah, love it. Yeah. The British are good at naming things. Like there's all the Scottish snowplows. Have you seen that? I feel like there's some people in Canada who might disagree. I mean, okay, I'm just going to pull them up right now. Okay, I'm Googling. Scottish snowplow names you just check yourself because you're about to wreck yourself ben okay, okay. <laughs> thanks 1999 okay here we go there is bear chills which is one there's the ice destroyer um license to chill william wall ice come on that's a great one 
Sorry, these are what? These are snowplows. They've named oh, okay. their snowplows. How much snow does England even get? Not a whole hell of a lot. Not like us, but I mean, they're doing it right. They've named their snowplows. So when you go and look on the app, mm-hmm. you can see that Frosty and Veruca Salt are uh, doing their job, right? That is good. I have to give that credit. See, and that's why we don't actually name ours is we don't want our citizens to get attached to our snowplows because many fall every season. Uh, This would be a good place for Danny Boy and the pipes as we take a moment to remember the snowplows that did not make it through the year. Mary Queen of Salt. That's all I know. Oh, come on. This one is great. Lord Coldermort and You're a Blizzard, Harry. Come on! these These are all good. You're right. They're great. I mean, I feel like they've got a deeper set of literary fiction and culture to draw from than we do. What are we going to call one of ours? Bearfucker? Yeah. Bearfucker. Um, oh, this is going to... Okay, this should be a contest. If you can come up with some great snowplow names, maybe we can, you know, ask the new mayor of Calgary to let us name a snowplow. But it's got to be funny. Got to be funny. Uh, we'll, we'll roll around in some sort of competition at some point, and we'll send somebody some ice cream within, you know, a very limited range of... Yeah, you have to live in Calgary. <laughs> or Edmonton. Or Edmonton. Maybe Cochrane. So we're here. We're doing this again. We are uh, talking about books, the books that we love, the books that have had an impact on us. Um, We're literary. You might not have gathered that from the first however many episodes you've listened to at this point, but we literary as fuck. And uh, not just comic books, prose too. Yeah, actual words and everything. No pictures. Yeah, with no pictures. Uh, sometimes for like a movie adaptation though, there's like some of the pictures stuck into the middle of the book. Yeah. That, that's different. That's for art, you know, art's sake. That's part of the art. Uh, and, uh, as always, I am, uh, Ben Rankle and I am your, I don't know. I was going to come up with something new like you do. Cause it's always funny, but I guess I'm still just your dad dork. And with me as always is our co-host here on Dork Matters. Lexi Hunt, your literary dork, huh? Yeah, I like your your literary in resonance dork. Yes, our uh, wait, our poet laureate dork, our dork laureate, dork laureate. That's much better. Dork laureate, dork yeah. laureate. We did it, and this is Dork Matters. It's fantastic. I just love that song so much. That song, if uh, you haven't uh, listened all the way through the uh, sort of post-show stuff, is called Dance. It's off of uh, the EP Astral by the band Yabra. They're so good. They are fantastic. Every tune is a banger. Banger. Pew, pew. So, yeah, like we said up front, we are here and we are talking about books that had an impact on us um, because we wanted to show you that we're not just about, uh, you know, Final Fantasy characters and and, and banging cartoons. 
Um, we've got substance. I mean, it's a big part of who we are. Yeah, it's the the, the, the larger part of who we are. What did you say, like 88%? Maybe more? 70, 70 to 80, yeah. Whoa, you are classy. I like to class it up. For me, it's like 95%. I have other interests. <laughs> oh, wow. Look at you, fancy lady. If you can't see right now, my pinky is raised as though I was a fancy person. They can't. This is this is a podcast. They absolutely cannot see. Oh yeah. <laughs> it seems like a who's that Pokemon coming already? I've got one ready for you. Okay, good. I can't wait to hear it at the at the halfway mark. We'll do our traditional who's that Pokemon. But for now, let's let's get into it. Should we go one for one? Yeah. You want to start? Oh yeah. Um, I have them ranked in timeline. Oh, like publishing timeline or your timeline? No, like in my personal life timeline. That is also basically how I approached it. Okay, good. Because I thought that like I'd start when I, I first read a book where I was like, this is changing who I am as a person and was actually very aware of it. Mm, that is some self-awareness that I appreciate. It, I, I feel like it was like puberty had ended and my brain was starting to settle. And I was like, oh, there's people that matter outside of me. Hmm. It was a very strange awakening. I would like to uh, throw this out there for your for your listening pleasure. I feel like this is like a LeVar Burton moment. We need a reading rainbow song. Do you know it? Do you know the lyrics? Oh, do I know the lyrics? Well, give us a bar. Take a look. It's in the book. Reading rainbow. When I met him at Comic-Con, we made our own, Comic XY, I should say, we made our own uh, Reading Rainbow t-shirts, my sister and I, and he was so nice about it. And he was like, Reading Rainbow. And uh, LeVar Burton is one of the greatest humans on the planet. I would put one of my top experiences as being in the same uh, room as him when he came to the Science Center to do that yes. uh, Star Trek event here in our city. He's a delightful person. Like he's just, he's, he's just a nice dude. He seems that way, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, I have unfortunately never had the chance to interact with him personally, but uh, I probably get all weird and giddy like I do when I meet anybody I think is cool. I wanted to hug him and like just follow him around. Can you pay extra for a hug? Um. Well, I mean, he definitely put his arms around us. Patrick Stewart did not. No, but he's on the edge of, you know, he can't do that. He can't take that chance with his health. No. Well, he's he is a god among men. Uh, Jonathan Frakes put his arm around me, for sure. I'm not surprised by that. He's a hugger. Jonathan Frakes will put his arms around whomever is within grasp. Don't you talk bad about Frakesy to me. That's not, it's about his libido. I think he uh, has some very Will Riker characteristics that uh, carried, I should say, he carried to the character of Will Riker. And I think they actually originated in him and not the other way around. What are you trying to say, Ben? I think he is voracious, sexually speaking. I think he's a talented individual, and I love him very much. I think he will just touch whomever he can touch. I don't think there's anything wrong with with sexuality. I'm going to stop right now because (laughs) it's going to get weird soon. (laughs) The sexuality of Jonathan Frakes? I just think the man man likes to get out there. So the book that I'm uh, talking about today is... (laughs) I really didn't think that Jonathan Frakes wanting to get it on would be the thing that drove a wedge between us. He's like my TV dad. Oh, interesting. I see him as like a, a parent figure. But the figure that he played on TV was not parental. So that's why I'm surprised. But I wanted him to be. Oh, that's okay. I'm not trying to. I thought that he was like, like, he kind of looks like me. 
Like we have similar features. Okay. Okay. There's a lot to this. I'm, I'm not grabby. No, no, I'm not implying you're grabby at all. No, I just, I'm trying to get to the, the place where Jonathan Frakes. Um, I don't know. Became memorialized in your mind as, as something beyond the, the character and, and the actor. I, you know what? I'm going to have to do some, some journaling. Dork therapy. Stuff. Yeah, this is the, uh, well, um, there's new things to talk to the old counselor about there. That's a, that's a <laughs> Sorry. So the Count of Monte Cristo is my my first submission to the old change the life. But, you know, I feel like a lot of people would agree with that and would say, like, no shit, because it is a book that really forces you to think about revenge and following through on um, a negative path. But when I read it, I think I was probably about, like, 18. I was just finishing high school, going to post-secondary thinking about the type of person that I wanted to be. And I think that reading this book really helped me to feel Mm -hmm. that there was a world outside of myself and that I needed to not be so spiteful and dramatic because I think that I was very much uh, up my own ass as a teenager and not exactly a great person. I still think that I've got a ton of work to do on myself, but this definitely helped me to... um, to think of myself in a different way. That's really cool. I have never read The Count of Monte Cristo. Do you know what it's about? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been around pop culture enough that I've gotten the gist of it. Yeah. Man is imprisoned, loses everything, sets out on a very long and arduous path to uh, get his revenge and finds that when he does, he has nothing left. Yeah, the revenge doesn't give him what he was hoping to have achieved from it. Like, he does everything on his little like kill list and he's kind of like well oh, still dead inside yeah and so had he taken the high road things probably would have been better and so it just kind of made me see that like there's a lot of things in life where you have absolutely no control but you do have choice over your own reactions to things so every time especially in my job I like to think about, I don't want to react, I want to act, which means it's a conscious choice about what I'm doing instead of just getting upset or jumping to conclusions about things, like really sitting down and having a good think before I, you know, respond to something. So Count of Monte Cristo, five stars. Love it. That's great. An important life lesson for sure. What about you? The first one I'm going with is a really messed up book I read in my mid-teens, I want to say, but it's called uh, Catacombs by uh, Paul McCusker. Uh, It is a religious fiction book. Coming back to the religion within, interesting. I mean, I have to. When when we get into stuff that helped me understand how things are, it's often in juxtaposition to how I was raised, which became a very on a regular basis, a thing that I butted up against as I tried to figure out what what the world was about. And it very often ended up not being what I was told it was initially, Um, which I think is is thematically something I run into either with my Christianity or with, uh, you know, being a white male in society. There is definitely a framework for existence that you are given and told works in both of those situations. And if you're, you know, trying to evolve and trying to be self-aware, you you butt into those things very, very, very often. So the book Catacombs is uh, sort of a post-apocalyptic Christian fiction novel 
Um, Christianity has been outlawed, uh, the biggest fear of all Christians in North America. Um, and uh, because of that, the main character, who's this professor from a university, goes on the run. He is on the run from the, the religion police, a whole dedicated task force that's come to hunt down every religious person and, and convert them or, or execute them. So the gist of the book, he ends up hiding out in this old church with a whole bunch of other ragtag group of, of holdouts to the faith. And uh, it's just, it's, it's like torture porn the whole time. It's just terrible things happening to this group that suffer for their faith over and over and over again. And in the very end, the character that is pursuing them finds them, catches them, drags them all outside and executes them. And that's the last part of the book is this person holding on to his faith, even as he's, he's shot in the head. Good God. And I bring this up because this book, after reading it and being like, whoa, what the hell was that? Uh, kind of led me to um, my first sort of like look at a concept that is uh, known as uh, Christian persecution complex, which is this sort of belief or attitude or worldview um, in, in the Christian belief system that I grew up in, this sort of pseudo non-denominational fundamentalism. Uh, of being oppressed by social groups or governments that any sort of social progress is actually an oppression of Christianity and Christians. And uh, it's promoted through a lot of American Protestantism and, and sort of the non-denominational, like new age-ish Christianity um, that I sort of grew up in. And so this was the first book where I read that and I went, what the fuck was this? Like, this was just about suffering this is about getting off on suffering like and the idea of suffering mm -hmm. and you are not suffering and so it started to crack that sort of veneer for me of like okay what is this like why is this the thing we're afraid of like we've got we've got god on all our money we've got god in our anthems like well and like our calendar yeah and are we really worried that like you know allowing gay people to have the same rights and privileges hetero people enjoy is, is really, you know, where this is uh, all falling apart and when they start to come for us. So it was my first, uh, my first glimpse into the Christian persecution complex and sort of my, I guess, my journey, which was a very long and arduous one towards sort of letting go of that aspect of, of how I was raised. Interesting. It's like, it did the opposite of what that genre probably was like intended to do. Yeah. Like it didn't hook you in. It pushed you out. Yeah. I had a few experiences like that through Christianity and I don't know why I was lucky when other people maybe aren't. Uh, I guess there's a lot of people that I managed to become friends with around me that pushed myself away from certain views or, or made me question things. I didn't, you know, I didn't make this connection immediately after reading the book. I started to be like, Oh, this is kind of weird. Like, why is this what this book is about? And, uh, you know, many years later would be able to be like, oh, shit. Okay, now I understand. So that's the first one for me. And it's such a weird and a big issue for me. And I'm not trying to, I don't know, alienate anybody by getting into something so religious. But I just, I can't talk about books that had an impact without that vividly memorable book for me. Uh, I still remember the plot, remember the cover, had a little spot gloss in the middle of where this little picture of a church was in the center of the word catacombs. And uh, oh. I remember rubbing that and going like, I want a spot finish on, you know, spot varnish finish on, on my cover one day. And I got it. Yeah, you did. Yeah. I got that on my, on my book. So yeah. The things that impact us. Sorry if I took us too, too deep and dark. Oh, no, that was great. I would, 
I found that one really fascinating just because like it's such a like we've talked about in the past it's just a world that's completely foreign to me so I'm fascinated by it I see myself as a construct and I maybe that's why I'm so I find so much relatability with like robotic characters and characters that are built Mm. because I find myself to be sort of that construct of these religious values and these white male masculinity and, 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 you know, that stuff built into this thing that I didn't realize I was for a long time and then have spent most of my adulthood trying to, uh, you know, take apart. So it's, it's interesting for me. That's some ghost in the shell type shit right there. Yeah. And another favorite character. Oh, so good. Well, along the religious-y type line, my next pick is It Happened in Boston. Have you ever read this book? I have not. I have a feeling that we are not going to have a whole lot of crossover here. I'm excited. Um, our mutual friend, Miss Miss Ashley, actually is the person who uh, she, I don't remember if she lent it to me or told me about it or she was reading it. And then I thought it sounded so cool. That when I was working at McNally Robinson back in the day. God, I miss McNally Robinson. That was the best job I ever had. I love McNally. Um, But I ordered it in, especially because the way she talked about it, I was like, I got to read this book. But I'm going to read you the back of it because I think it's just, it's so awesome. So first published by Random House in 1968, Russell H. Greenan. I'm so bad with names. Greenan. It Happened in Boston is the story of a brilliantly talented, unbalanced artist who strives to meet God face-to-face in order to destroy him. Whoa. It's a magic spell book of phantasmagoric, lushly written, full, unforgettable characters and brilliant twists of plot, writes Jonathan Lethem in his introduction. Vivid depictions of the art world and breathtaking narrative that incorporates forgery, time travel, and murder, this hilariously disturbing debut novel... Um, now an underground cult classic is ripe for rediscovery it is so good and it is so messed up because it literally it's about three artists who are kind of like you know underground not really appreciated in boston and they're all kind of making their own artwork and one of the characters finds a book and wants to follow the spells in it so that he can meet angels and gods and it starts him on this like murderous journey where he's obsessed with like art and trying to meet angels and God. Like, it's just, I don't know how to describe it other than you just have to read it because it's so weird, but it's so good. It feels like the realm of magical surrealism. Yeah, it definitely is, which is kind of maybe like, that's my genre. Oh, like looking at the other books I have, like that is basically the rest. Yeah. I, uh, I think we'll have some, some similarity there for sure. Um, but you know, also genre fantasy and, and sci-fi for me. Mm-hmm. Well, and one of the reasons, like I first started getting into graphic novels other than like, so comics is something separate for me, but the reason I started getting into graphic novels was because I always wanted to take this book and adapt it into a graphic novel. That's a cool, cool urge. Yeah. So that's my number two. That's a great choice. Um, I guess I'm going to move into my next tier, which is... The Lord of the Rings, oh. um, which is a book I got to via um, sort of C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and like, you know, the Narnia books. I sort of, that was my first sort of mm-hmm. toe dip into fantasy, pseudo fantasy. It was still in the Christian realm, so I was allowed to read it. Yeah. Um, and that led me to sort of uh, The Pilgrim's Progress or whatever that book is called, um, which is sort of a pseudo fantasy book about the Christian journey or whatever. 
but had a lot of like monsters and stuff in it. And then we got to Lord of the Rings, which was just, Hey, I did it. I'm out of Christian only books at this point. And, uh, I'm, I'm finally into the world of fantasy and something new and just the world building. I was able to disappear into these books and just be there, which is something I look for in all of the, you know, movies, games, books, comics, everything that I'm into. My favorites are when like, suddenly I'm, I'm not, out here anymore i'm there in that book and i just i don't remember what i was doing i'm, I'm just part of that world and he's verbose and wordy and and it takes me in but it's it's my jam i like that uh, okay so i had never read the final book in chronicles of narnia that whole series and what i'm gonna do spoiler alert spoiler alert when you find out the whole family is dead i was like what like i Remember, I had to go back and reread it a few times. I sure as shit do not remember this. What? I read them all as a kid. Do not remember them. Sorry to do that to you, buddy, but um, they're all dead. No, it's fine. I don't care. And it was just, it, like, it was so upsetting to find out, like, they had been living in this world because they had died. And I was, like, just mind blown. And I, I felt betrayed. <laughs> Like, I was angry. I wasn't like, oh, cool. I was like, this shit sucks. Oh, because they stayed in the world. The, the kids stayed in the world and they went back and their family's dead. Is that what I'm you're I'm going to have to look it up. But I feel like in the very last book, a few of the kids, um, because like Lucy and all those people, like they grow up and become older, right? Yeah, they grew up much earlier. Yeah. yeah but yeah. then like the other kids that kind of like continue on, like I can't remember the, the asshole kid who turns out to be pretty good. Yeah, Cletus, and yeah, you know, the British name Cletus. Ah, yeah, Cleet. Um, what the f this is going to drive me insane, but they, they're they talking to Aslan, and Aslan's like, yeah, actually, you guys all died in a train accident. And I was like, fuck. Wait, but they're still in the world somehow? I'm looking it up. fuck is this? She's going to it. Google, folks. She's going to Google. How did they die in... Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, here we go. Do your thing, Google. Okay, so there is a train wreck. Um, the Pensy brothers were at the station when they were killed by a train, uh, while the other five friends of Narnia were inside the train. The kids don't realize that they died until they're already in Aslan country. Right, because Aslan's country is heaven, I guess, or what? Because he's supposed to be God? Yeah, I think that's what it was. So is every kid that's in Narnia dead? I think so. Because the other kids, Lucy and all them, they grow up outside of the world. So like, what the hell? Okay, so the participants were gathering together to speak of their times in Narnia. So everybody was getting together as an adult or teenager or whatever. Then they saw a vision of King Tyrion in Narnia asking for their help. Peter and Edmund went to find the magical rings that had brought Polly and Diggory to Narnia. You were thinking Diggory and... Cletus, was that right? Yeah, but I'll, yeah. I'll always know him as Cletus. That's fine. Uh, when they found them, they uh, contacted the others who took a train to join the brothers. The wreck occurred at the train as the train was coming into the station. The Pensy brothers were at the station and they were killed by the train, which had the friends of Narnia inside of it, which is terrible. Kids don't realize that they're dead. All the children who had visited Narnia and still believed in it died in this wreck except for Susan, because she stopped believing. Because you only get to go to heaven if you believe in God yeah. or whatever. I was just so mad about that. I was like, so these kids... Yeah, yeah, it's a fucked up way to uh, approach, uh, you know, 
this idea of everlasting life and happiness is only for your chosen few. Oh my God, we got to stop or else I'm going to get into just, it's going to become the theological episode where I start pointing out all the different things that crack the facade of Christianity for me. I'm trying not to be aggressive towards people who are listening that might still feel those things. This is my personal journey. I am not telling you how to approach your beliefs or, or what you're doing, but you know, I have strong feelings because of how it impacted my life. I'm sorry that I took over your Lord of the Rings to talk about Narnia. Nah, fuck it. It's not. It's a book. It's a book club. Book club. Book club. Oh man. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of uh, overlap there with those books, and I think uh, Narnia is a gateway drug to larger fantasy stuff for a lot of people. So. Oh, for sure. And they were pals, weren't they? Ah, uh, I do not know that, but that's cool. And that's if it's not true, it's dork matters true. It, I, I'm, I'm gonna put put a toonie on the on this one that they were friends in the army. A toonie is a Canadian coin worth two dollars Canadian. Two dollars. I'm betting two bucks. Most of our listeners are not actually from Canada, weirdly enough. Yeah, thank you, non-Canadian listeners, for listening to our podcast. That's lovely to have and uh, learning about what a toonie is. A $2 coin. We had one that was called the Looney that was a $1 coin. So With a loon on it. The, the brilliant folks we are, we called the $2 coin a toonie. It had two polar bears on it. I guess still does. I don't know if it said it did. I think there's like special ones, but it definitely makes me feel like kind of a goof sometimes when I'm like, there's yeah, yeah. there's polar bears on it, like on the Coca-Cola cans at Christmas time. Oh, that's fine for me. It's just calling it a toonie. It's a toonie. It makes me feel like a bit of a goof. Here's a $2 coin. Well, what do you call that? A toonie. I got a one and a toonie. We're very good at naming our money. It just makes me feel like such an idiot because all these other places around the world have like cool names for their money. Like in the UK, there's so many different names yeah. for money. And then you come to like... The pound. Huckleberry Canada. And we're like, we, we like money named after animals. <laughs> I always get upset with the way that Canadians are portrayed in the media. Like my favorite Canadian joke is from the Simpsons when the kid is like, I'm from Canada. They think I'm slow, eh? And I'm like, that's such horseshit. We're not stupid. And then I'm like, but we do name our money. Yeah. Like a bunch of goofs. So uh, the last one I'll do uh, is uh, thematically good. It makes sense. Cause it's sort of my earlier, uh, you know, part of that grouping of earlier teens and early adulthood, but uh, a book by uh, Tom Robbins called Jitterbug Perfume was given to me by a friend. And this one sort of was like how you talked about Monte Cristo in that this one changed how I looked at the world. And uh, specifically, it has a character who's like a satyr, uh, like a half goat person, I don't know, whatever you want to call that. And uh, you follow this character for this whole book. And then eventually, I realized that this character in this world of this this book is actually like the depiction of modern day Satan. He is what Satan is based off of this character and his powers in the book and such have all led to the, the modern day depiction of Satan. And I'm like, oh, so I've been reading this book and sympathizing with Satan this entire time. And I'm like, oh, oh, fuck. So, so, you know, looking at a story or a series of events from somebody else's point of view can completely change the context and how you view it and change, you know, good to bad, et cetera. And I was like, as a, you know, again, the Christian thing comes up, but like, oh, I would never have continued to read a book if I knew I was reading a book that was sympathetically dealing with a character of the devil. Mm. 
I would not have kept reading that. I could not have. I could not have overcome my own feelings about certain aspects of like how the world works to continue reading a book that's main character was the devil. Uh, but starting out with that perspective shift and following him along from sort of Greek mythology up until modern day where he is, you know, suddenly branded as the devil. I'm like, oh, okay, I get this now. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah, looking at the world just a little bit differently and trying to figure out that, okay, I got I got told things are X, but that's not always the case. And that is a, I would say, a pretty big lesson for a religious white boy. That's a, that's a tough lesson that not a lot of people want to learn. So it's kind of nice that it snuck up on you. It did. It just like partway through the book. And Tom Robbins also I learned to enjoy as just sort of a fun writer who had fun with language. So that's a big one for me. Let's go to... Or mid-show break. Break. Pew, pew. Dun, 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 Who's that Pokemon? <laughs> Who's that author? <laughs> okay, I'm going to describe an author to you, just their silhouette, and you have to guess who the author is. <laughs> this is not going to go well, but I'm absolutely delighted to try. Let's go. Who's that Othermon? Okay, so the silhouette is kind of kind of frumpy, but not really. Like more like um, like if somebody took a lump, I'm already dying. Squished it together like a like a wet clump of sand. So everybody over forty. Yes. <laughs> Anyone over forty who's you know COVID has happened and they're just making ends meet. So. They're a wet clump of sand. And then if I was going to describe... <laughs> people are going to get so mad when they find out who it is. Oh my god. How? This is a beautiful description. Okay, keep going. I'll try not to Okay. Um, the sil- I'm just going to start describing. because, And then you can stop when we get there. So the, the author Mon has gray hair. And it's curly. Okay. Um... Sometimes they wear glasses, but most of the time they don't. All right, we're we're sort of out of the strict realm of silhouette here, but yeah, I'm we're moving in it. because otherwise this is just going to go on with me describing. Okay, sand it's sort of starting forever. to fade out a little bit. Yes, yeah, we're, you know, it's like when you're at the the movies and before the movie starts, and it's like, who's that celebrity? And they slowly start like yeah, yeah. depixelating, and they want me to like yeah. text in for seven dollars a text. Exactly, I'm not doing that shit. But okay, we got gray curly hair and a sandbag. <laughs> Well, it's hard to describe a, the human body, people. Um, no, I think you summed it up perfectly. I often describe myself as pancake batter shoved in a Ziploc, so. <laughs> I describe myself as a weeble wobble. That's perfect as well. You have a way with words. A lyrical wordsmith. I'm the Kanye of Canada. Um, they wear <laughs> okay. a lot of long sweaters and caftan type outfits, scarves, dramatically thrown over the shoulder doctor who no not very close we're getting closer tom baker no um i think they wear a lot of black pants neil gaiman no but i love that you said that no he's more stick like he's not really sandbag i'd go with matchstick this is a canadian figure okay margaret atwood there you go boom ding 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 i think most people would be okay with calling her a sandbag at this point i don't know how to describe the human like she's always wearing like long flowy sweaters every time i say yeah 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 Yeah. it's definitely um what are those called shawls she's a shawler she's a shawl person and so it takes away the human form so you just kind of look like i see you know what i mean 
You're not saying that she's a lumpy sack. No, I'm saying that her outline. That her clothing makes her look like a lumpy sack. It's if an you, important distinction. If you were going to take a silhouette of anyone. Yeah. Maybe like three people in the world wouldn't wind up being a wet bag of sack. <laughs> Sounds That's so why mean. this was the perfect choice for today's Who's That Pokemon? <laughs> oh. That was fantastic. I needed that. Getting too into my uh, my own head thinking about childhood via literature. <laughs> or I guess not even childhood, young adulthood. But I love that you said Neil Gaiman because my next book is Neil Gaiman. It's perfect. How could it not be? He needs to represent here. Okay, so he came and he spoke as, um, I don't know, like a guest speaker at the UFC. And I got tickets and I actually went to go see him speak. And it was one of those moments in life where I was like, this is as good as it gets. Like I could die now. Was this the first time you'd gone to see an author? No, it was the first time I went and saw someone of his caliber. Like, I was shocked that he was here, and I thought tickets would be sold out right away, and that I was going to have to, like, you know, when you go to, like, a hockey game, there's scalpers. Like, I thought I was going to have to just show up at the university and, like, sneak in or something. And so when I got tickets... Yeah, and there'd be some guy overweight in, like, a pair of badly fitting jeans and a Calgary Flames jersey. Well, then they'd be sweatpants, come on. Hey, who needs a Neil Gaiman tickets? That's the Calgary accent, if you're unfamiliar. Tickets, tickets, flames. Yeah, I was just shocked that, A, he was coming here to read at the UFC. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. And then even more shocked that I got tickets. And so I went. And it was the great. And they were very clear that, like, he's doing a reading only. He'll answer a couple questions and then he's out. But even still, I brought a couple books in my purse just in case. Just so I could go and be like, your writing means so much to me and I love you. But the great thing about that is now every time I read any of his work, his voice is so ingrained in my head that it's like he's reading to me and I love him. And um, So which title are we looking at? I'm, the very first one I ever read from him was Neverwhere, which is, and I reread it every couple of years, but it was the first book I ever read. And I think I had bought it when I was at the airport on my way Um for an international flight and I was like oh this looks really popular and I just picked it up on a whim and like you were saying I was so lost in it that it was like an eight-hour flight and all of a sudden we landed and then I was like holy crap like I've almost finished this book um because I fell asleep at one point and it was like I was in the world and it just it means so much to me that I was able to lose myself into this dingy below London type world and it just Oh, it's just such a great book and I think everyone should read it. So I came, uh, I come at Neil Gaiman from comics. That's just mm -hmm. my, my, my place. And I've got my favorites there and we'll save that for another time. But so I don't actually know this book and I need a quick, a quick, quick synopsis for me. Back of the book. Here. Richard Mayhew is a plain man with a good heart and an ordinary life that is changed forever on a day. He stops to help a girl he finds bleeding on a London sidewalk. From that moment forward, he is propelled into a world he never dreamed existed. A dark subculture flourishing in abandoned subway stations and sewer tunnels below the city. A world far stranger and more dangerous than the one he's ever known. So, and like, if, you, if you're familiar with London at all, you know that there's like this really wild world of like kind of derelict and unused uh, tube stations from when London was young. To my great shame, I've only ever been to Heathrow Airport. Oh, like it, London is, well, London is one of the oldest cities in the world. And so old Londinium, old Londinium. It's so it's just built up on Roman ruins. And so there's all these weird 
catacombs and tunnels and so it's the whole world of like where do the homeless people go and so it's this whole other universe happening below the streets and it's with kings and witches and thieves and it's just so awesome it's kind of like medieval london never stopped so i highly recommend it it is um i think there's a really great audio book um that you can listen to with some really great voice actors that do it it was a radio play i think bbc did it at one point but it's one of his most like i think this is the book that really kind of propelled him into the literary world mainstream this is a really good point for a quick aside here which is uh audiobooks reading or not technically it's reading because um studies have shown that it activates the same part of your brain that reading like old school reading does so oh i think i see what you mean the distinction is between the the audiobook versus the yeah I thought we were making a distinction between a different type of reading, like it had to be old English from a scroll or something to activate the same point of the brain. There are some difficult but like even The Hobbit. I think, like, I read The Hobbit when I was in grade six, and now I feel like some grade six kids I know, like, I don't know that they could read The Hobbit. Yeah, I think I did The Hobbit same. It was either grade six or seven as well as, like, you know, yeah. Lord of the Flies. Actually, it's a funny little bit of... Uh... I don't know if funny is the right word when we're talking about books. Interesting. Interesting. Amusing. Uh, it's just sort of, I got super into Shakespeare for a bit in high school too, Ooh. because we read Caesar, I think it was grade 11 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, I think it was part of the analysis that the teacher was doing in the class that made it so interesting to me. But I just went on a kick and read a bunch of Shakespeare on my own and was like, I like this. And nobody believes me when I tell them that. No, there's a reason those plays have been around for so long and that they keep being adapted into movies and plays and whatever. Yeah, they're interesting characters. They're dramatic situations. There's, you know, witches and shit and all sorts of crazy, you know, fantastical elements to a lot of them. And uh, yeah, the language is obviously a barrier, which is the connection I was making here. But I often felt that even as a sort of teenager that you just read them long enough and you start to understand, even if, you know, some of the language is hard or the structure is hard. You get used to it. I had a Shakespeare book that had like the play in the middle of the page and then along just the side of the page, um, like definitions and kind of like a synopsis of like, when this character said this, this is what they meant. And I was, it was so helpful because it was like sitting next to a translator and that helped me read all other Shakespeare plays afterwards because I could kind of pick up like, oh, that's what they mean. And that's why that's funny. Yeah, yeah. You get like a sort of contextual understanding of how they use certain words, even if you don't necessarily understand how they're being used outside of the context of old English. But yeah, Shakespeare's cool. Some people like it. Yeah. But were they written by a woman? No. I think that's the premise of a movie. Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Oh, that's Shakespeare in love, isn't it? Is it? I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know the shit I'm talking about. What's the next book? Uh, so I'm going to go with a series on whole as opposed to a book. And that is the Redwall series, uh, since we're... Oh, you love Redwall. Over in England uh, by uh, Jeff Jakes, uh, who I don't know a crazy amount. So this is interesting. This is basically sort of a, a middle grade or YA series. And I came to it as an adult in my mid twenties. Uh, my partner was like, I love these books as a kid. You should check them out. And I went through just a whole crap ton of them all at once. And I was like, this is, this is it. This is what I've always wanted. And I'm so upset. I didn't get to read these when I was younger. 
um, but I love them still. They still hold up. They're great adventures. And it also connected some dots for me on like the kind of world I wanted to create and write about, which was animals doing fantasy world shit. And that's where we're at now. Uh, that's what I, that's what I'm trying to do is write books about mm-hmm. fantasy animals going on their little adventures. And that is a direct line from being like, Oh, Redwall did this for me. I used to read like lots of stories when I was young. Like there's like a little golden book where a mouse goes to sea on a, on a, like a bed and it becomes his boat and he fights off rat pirates and stuff. Oh yeah. I'm like, this is amazing. And there's a lot of those sorts of things, like little things, you know, secret of Nim pops up at some point and you know, the movie for me, not the literary stuff, but, uh, what about Watership? I never read them. I saw a bit of the cartoon. I always found it a little bit dry, uh, but I didn't like the Redwall cartoon when I saw it as, as a kid either. I was like, I don't know what this is, but I was still like, apparently had this desire to create animal characters that are going on fantasy adventures. So I don't know, some leftover from, I don't know, Five O Goes West or some shit. Uh, but yeah, Redwall brought that all into focus for me. And that is my direction now. I'm trying to create, you know, a series of, uh, of adventure fantasy novels with little animals as the protagonist. I can't wait. I love it. I'm so excited for your books. It's going to be such a great. They're so interesting, these Redwall books. And they are, you know, they are for middle grade, but they never talk down to the reader. They never treat you stupidly. Like, I, I respect that. But that's what I love about some of these books. Like, especially like with The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. Like we were reading them, yeah, when we were the YA age, but they still hold up as an adult and they absolutely do. you could read them to probably younger people if you wanted. It's just they're lovely. I'm absolutely excited to read the Redwall books to my son. Aww. Um and okay, I just want to give a taste because one of the best things about these books is that there's always like a giant feast in Redwall books, uh, either before a battle or after a battle. And the descriptions of the food and the cozy atmosphere is just absolutely fantastic to the point where I actually bought the Redwall cookbook and like make dishes from it. Um, no, that's awesome. But here, I'll read you just like one or two of these little things. Uh, like one trolley had a big barrel of mixed berry cordial and some flagons on it. The other held a delicious three-tiered cake topped with whipped cream. There was cheddar cheese and almonds and hazelnuts, apple and plum dumplings, a lattice blackberry tart with yellow meadow cream, golden crust bread hot from the ovens, and a choice of pennywort cordial or rosehip and almond flour tea. I was like, that shit makes me hungry. That sounds so good. And it sounds so like uniquely animal based as well. Like everything's sort of vegetarian and from the meadows and cordials and like fresh. I want I want to eat everything that they talk about in those books so that's that's a huge one for me the redwall series we gotta keep moving okay okay and that kind of the food element is kind of what leads me to my next book which is kafka on the shore by mr murakami and i really struggled to pick between this one and wind up bird chronicles but this was the first murakami book that i read that got me hooked on all of his writing and it's perfect because this is our double jeopardy This is on my list as well. We are doing Kafka on the Shore specifically. Get into it. Let's go. He, like, the way that Murakami writes about food is so poetic. And, like, every time he writes about, like, ramen or making spaghetti or even, like, pouring a glass of wine, like, it'll take up pages, but it's so um, very, like, seductive in a way. Like, it's just makes me hungry every time he writes about food. So 
this book, the first time I picked it up is because I worked again at McNally Robinson and I had just gotten a paycheck and I was like, I should buy some books. What should I buy? And one of the ladies that I worked with, Anne, she was like, you need to read this book. That's how they get you. They give you the money and then they know you're going to spend it back there. Oh, I spent so much money at that store. Oh my God. Bookstore. So many books. I still have so many of them, but she said, you need to read this book. It's so good. And I just, from the time that they introduced Colonel Sanders and I was like, what am I reading? And then looking at this whole world of talking cats and a journey between these two very, very different characters that are coming together to this culminating point in such a weird way. I just was so... It can only be described as surreal. Yeah, and honestly, that's when I finished it, I kept thinking of like a Dali painting. Like it's, he writes the way a surrealist painter paints. Like everything is just so slightly weird that you feel like you're having a fever dream. Yeah. And I just, I loved it. I just, it's beautifully written. It's weird enough that like it can kind of be a little fantasy, but not too much. So I just, this is the book that hooked me on all of his writing. I've read everything he's written since, including some like weird um, kind of obscure translation pieces. And I just, I love him. I think he's a beautiful writer. So that's, that's my pick. That's a good one. And I'm just going to pick up and keep going with it because I want to talk a little bit about Kafka and sort of the themes of, uh, I found it it was dealing with trauma in an interesting way. That was my take Mm -hmm. on it and sort of this alternate reality that these characters keep going into and have to get into and the stuff that happens there that's separated from the corporeal version of their characters. And it just, it's traumatic to me anyhow, is sort of just dealing with traumatic events and and sort of the, you know, out of body experience. And you finish the book and you're like, I just read through somebody's dream or therapy session. I'm not sure which, but it was fun. Somehow he made it fun. And that's from like characters like Johnny Walker, the cat killer. And you're just like, oh, okay. I love this idea as like this brand as a, as a villain and uh, Colonel Sanders as sort of the otherworldly demon entity thing. And the part where like the the eels or fish or whatever just start raining from the sky. And I'm like, oh, what the fuck is happening? But also like, this is perfect. This makes sense thematically. This feels right for the emotions in this scene. It is beautiful. Uh, I have not gone on to read everything from Murakami after this because uh, I went to the Wind Up Bird Chronicles next. And it's an older work from him. And it just, I think Kafka was just so perfect to me that I couldn't get through the Wonder Bird Chronicle. I, I got, I got stuck at some point. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't know what's happening here. This doesn't have the same energy to the plot as I got used to with that other book. And I think I got spoiled with Kafka, and I, I, I haven't gone back. The pacing is definitely different for all of his other books. They're very subtle and slow, but each, like, I don't know. I feel like it's um. You know those like unboxing videos where someone will like duct tape a present and then put it in concrete and you have to like go through all the that's what I feel like it is with him. You have to like kind of read through all of this buildup to have this one perfect moment. And then it's just kind of like coming down off of that. Because some of his other books, I would agree. I do find like although I've read everything, um almost I would say I'll probably there's some things I haven't read, but I've read so much of his work that I definitely can understand why not everyone loves him. I have found some of his books hard to get through, but I love so many aspects of his writing that to me, it's worth reading the entire book just to like 
just to have a couple of little moments with him, you know? Yeah, that's, I think that's understandable. And I wouldn't normally like levy uh, a term like slow or, or whatever against any sort of books. I think it was just after the magical sort of way that Kafka did it and intertwined those stories and kept things interesting, even though maybe it wasn't like the most like racing plot or anything it still managed to make every moment and scene really interesting to me. And yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess Wanda Bird Chronicle was so meandering for me with the character's journey that I was just like, I noped out at one point. But I think, so he's a big time runner. Like he runs, he's a big runner. And so when I read that about him, I was like, Oh my God, that makes so much sense because I don't know if there's any runners out there running sucks, but then you get to a point where you're like, Oh, okay, I can do this. I love running, but you're running on a path and it's, I don't know. I just, I feel like he writes like he's running. It's not a race. It's more like he's enjoying the run. He's out there enjoying the sunshine. He's going to go to the beach. It's the part 10 to 15 minutes in where you hit your pace. Your breathing is finally right. You don't feel sluggish anymore. And you're in that, oh, I could just keep doing this for as long as I need to now. Yeah. Like I've, I've reached that, like, this is my pace right here. And I feel like that's what his books are. Interesting. I might have to try another crack at that. I stopped, uh, I don't know, about two thirds of the way through when the character is in the well and has been there for an extended period of time and is like being forced to confront like his his existence because he's stuck in a sensory deprivation tank for all intents and purposes. And it's like, I, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm in a sensory deprivation tank right now. Yeah, I, I get that. Maybe, okay, so I would say, and I'll just lend you some because I've got a whole bunch of books you can pick from, but like Dance, Dance, Dance or uh, Wild Sheep Chase might be. I always wanted to read Norwegian Wood, but do you think I'm going to run into the problem again? Where Yeah, I do. I'm older now, so maybe it won't be as big of a deal to me. That one is not like his other ones. Oh, interesting. That sounds like a good thing. I I would say, I don't know. Because it's one of the ones that you usually get uh, put out there when people ask you about Murakami. I found that one more of like a romance for oh, me. Okay. Oh, but it is one of his, like they turned it into movies. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It is one of his more popular works for sure. Interesting. That's, uh, I'm glad we had that one yeah. to talk about. I just love the characters in there. Uh, what's his name? Mm-hmm. The main old guy. Is it, is it, oh God, I'm so bad at names. I'm going to look it up. Going to Google. Isn't it uh, Nakata? Yeah, Satoru Nakata. I was trying to remember Satoru. Yeah, Nakata as the, you know, the person who's suffered and and has some developmental issues because of it and some communicative Mm -hmm. issues because of it and just finds a new world in these cats. That's the part that was like everything to me, that that cat world. Okay, so my final, I don't, I'm not, I don't have a final book. I just have a final author, which is full circle. Go for it. We don't got rules. We make the rules. David Sedaris. <gasps> now, I've heard of this author before. Somebody uh, has talked them up to me. Just recently. What can you tell us about David Sedaris? Oh, I love him. And I know that he comes with some controversy. Like there's a lot of um, animosity towards him after, especially the, the passing of one of his sisters was not exactly a pleasant topic with I've read a lot of fans that were very unhappy with him with how he treated that because she was um, a very troubled individual and she wound up taking her own life and the way he writes about her in some of his books are quite like it's intense and he even talks about his own sobriety and you know experimentation with drugs and 
you know, I've, I've definitely read some people are pretty critical of him and I get it, but I just find his writing to be so fluid that it, it feels like you're having a conversation with somebody and God, like writing humor is difficult. It is so hard to be funny, period, like on command. It's so difficult to be funny, but then to write it in a novel about your own family, that's like his mother was an alcoholic. He and his sisters did a lot of drugs growing up. And then talking about what it was like to be a gay man in North Carolina. Like, like there's so many really difficult subjects that he talks about, but in such a way that's funny and approachable that I just, again, he's another one. I've read everything he's written and he just keeps getting better with age. I just love him. I don't know. Well, I'm excited to try the book you recommended to me earlier. Um, I will slot it in somewhere between the Star Wars <laughs> novels that I'm reading, the sci-fi novels from the uh, Quebecer author, and uh, and my my continuing pursuit of completing the entire Terry Pratchett Discworld series. Oh yeah, I'm on Mort. So I've got a long way to go. So just sneak it in there real quick. Yeah, definitely. That's why I like audiobooks, Ben, because then you can listen while you're out walking, walking the kid. Yeah, I usually have to talk to him, unfortunately. Not that came out way wrong. What I mean is, no, I mean, it takes my full focus to take care of a child is yeah. what I'm trying to say. Not that I have to talk to him. I like talking to you. And honestly, being a parent yeah. is the most gratifying thing I've ever done. So not a joke. Actually, the most gratifying I like the picture you sent me of him dumping chocolate milk all over himself. That to me was just like, yeah, perfect. It happens sometimes. So let's, we haven't done enough tangents yet, but apparently uh, children at that age two-ish don't have impulse control. It's just not built into them yet. And so I guess when his little brain decides that he wants to try to do something, he just does it. It doesn't matter what the consequences are. There's no consideration. It just happens. It's just immediate. So I love it. Yeah. He wanted to dump that chocolate milk out and his shoes and pants and shirt be damned. You did a great job. It made, it made a great uh, little Instagram. <laughs> Just on loop. Just like two and a half seconds on loop. Of <laughs> chocolate milk everywhere. You just look so oh, surprised. Like that's what happens. I would love to listen to audiobooks more, but it does not gel with uh, my very limited focus. I can do one thing at a time. You know that thing when you were a kid, you had to rub your stomach and pat your head at the same time? Oh, yeah. I could not. And that sums me up pretty well. My mom would always say it's like the Charles Emerson Winchester from MASH. I do one thing, I do it well, and then I move on. Yeah, I'm exactly like that, except I do one thing and it's usually Midland. But God damn it if I don't enjoy it. I do a lot of things at once, and mostly I'm shit at all of them. Yeah, you're a jack of all trades. What's a shitty version of jack of all trades? You're a you're a Cletus of all trades. Yeah, I'm a Cletus. <laughs> Poor Cletus. If your name is Cletus and you're out there, we want to know who you are. There's a person named Cletus. Yeah, yeah. You should probably tell us if you're listening to this and your name is Cletus. We'd like you to. Talk to us. Um, you will become the unofficial mascot of Dork Matters. Okay, I got to move these these quick. I've, I've dragged my feet. I, I brought way too many books. Sorry. So I'm going to sort of sum up a few here. But the idea, talking about Terry Pratchett there briefly, uh, love the language, his, his way of using language, and yeah. just sort of the humor in choosing words that are 
amusing and can be a joke in one direction and a joke in another. But that also leads me to Douglas Adams, who is exactly the same. Great call. To me, but like on the sci-fi side of things. Um, And just that playfulness with language that I just appreciate from a writer so much, just the ability to tell a really great narrative, uh, great characters, et cetera, et cetera. But then just also having fun with just the literal forms of words and how you're putting them together and doing just hilarious things like having a bunch of dashes and saying like, you know, and the other person couldn't pronounce any of that. Uh, I'm doing a bad job summing it up, but he also gave me my favorite and probably first ever book quote, which was, uh, there's an art to flying, or rather a knack, and the knack lies in learning how to throw yourself at the ground and miss. Clearly, it is the second part, the missing, that presents the difficulties. And it's just, it's funny, but it's also poignant. And it's just like, yeah, that, that kind of is the idea of, of doing something, you know, impossible or difficult. All of his writing is, like, at the surface, like, just like, ha, ha, ha. But then when you really think about it, like, yeah, that's really, really poignant. That's beautiful. It's it's poignant. It's clever. Like, it's witty. It's 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 smart. But then, like, I really saw that juxtaposed when I read the, the novel that was finished posthumously by... Um, I forget the author's name, but somebody basically took took a go at a, a final book in the Hitchhiker series mm-hmm. after he passed. And it's like, okay, I can see what you're doing here. You're mechanically copying his structure of like joke, a little bit of description, character talking, blah, 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 joke. But I'm like, you don't have it. You, you, you're just not it. And, and because of that, I just see what you're trying to do the whole time. Did you ever read The Salmon of Doubt? Uh, that's uh, Dirk Gently, right? No, um, it's. I have not, Maybe... been, obviously, okay. but I thought it was a Dirk Gently book. Well, okay, I could be wrong, and I haven't read it for a long time. It's a collection put together after Douglas Adams died, and it's like of his letters to the editor, a couple um, short chapters from books. Oh, cool! Um, some of his essays, but there's one essay he wrote about when he was. He rented like a cabin somewhere and every day these two dogs would come see him and they would just like appear one day. And the entire time he was out on the land, they came and saw him. And then one day they didn't show up and he was so sad and that's it. Like that's the essay. And it was so sad that I remember crying and all he did was write about these two dogs. And so I feel like people who write humor understand how to write in such a nuanced way that they can really communicate emotions better than, like if I had written that, people would have been like, great, it's about a dog. But he wrote it and it was about like loss and belonging. And oh my God, was it good. Salmon and Doubt. Yeah, you get you get a lot from them. I will pick that up. Yeah, I did not. I had erroneously included it with uh, the Dirk Gently grouping of novels, but it is not one. I have double checked that. That's great. Yeah, so it's just an appreciation for those two writers, especially being sort of satirist, if you will, but, but not even really, it's, it's something bigger than that humorous or yeah, there's just an insight and a love of language that permeates that work. That is uh, something that I, I found I really appreciated uh, in a way I hadn't from other books where I'd actually stopped to like consider it. And it's also, you know, then Kurt Vonnegut is very similar in sort of his playfulness with language and even Tom Robbins, who was another art uh, writer that I mentioned earlier, but yeah, it's definitely a through line with some of those writers that I've gone through their collections of work and finished them because I've been like, this is, this is what it does for me. This is, this is my thing. Mm-hmm. 
I will never write like that, but I, God damn it, I appreciate it. Oh yeah, it's it's magical. I guess that's it for me. I got a series that I really enjoy now, um, but we'll save that for another time. I don't know if it really fits here. We'll do book recommendations some other time. This is the Wayfarer series um, by uh, writer Becky Chambers, and it is a more recent thing that I found, and it's sci-fi, but the approach to sci-fi that is very human and about um, looking at things like artificial intelligence and alien life and just sort of like cataclysmic events, but through like a lens of the smaller people on the sidelines um, or the the person in the background, if you will, from like an important shot in a movie. We're not watching the star. We're, we're looking at the people in the background who are doing construction. And that was a really interesting approach to storytelling and just looking at the world uh, and, and a sci-fi universe through just a much more grounded and human sort of way. And yeah, an example being is in the first book, uh, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, um, you know, the main characters all work on the ship and they're doing a job. And at one point they get boarded by pirates, but it's not like a normal sci-fi film, like, or like The Expanse or something where everybody hops into action and they fight them off and defend what they're doing. And no, they just get pistol whipped and, and, and robbed by these alien, alien pirates. And then there's also this moment of, conversation and connection between the characters and the pirates where they realize what has happened to these pirates to turn them into who they are and why they need what they're doing. Mm. And it is very humanizing if you'll pardon the expression for alien characters, but it, it does what I love about writers in general, which is giving me a perspective that I normally wouldn't get from that type of character in a novel, some perspective on where they come from and how they get there and, and avoiding sort of the straightforward tropes of writing, which is, you know, pirate, bad, evil, stab, stab, but more like these are desperate people forced to, into a shitty situation mm-hmm. and they are not, you know, doing what they're doing, you know, for adventure or whatever. And neither are the people on the other side of it who are being victimized by it. It was just, again, to overuse the word hum- humane, a humane way of looking at you know, space and then ultimately our, our own world. That sounds really interesting. I'd like to read that. <laughs> I believe you. No, like the, the dork matters book club. But I look, cause um, I'm, we are reading our way through the expanse right now and watching the TV show. And I, yeah, I, I love anything to do with space but it is easy to just kind of fall into these tropes. And so anything that kind of can take that genre and put a different lens on it, I'm really interested in how we could do that. And The Expanse does a great job of that in its own way. Not the novels for me, because I haven't read them, but the TV series, at least, in just approaching the sci-fi in a more hard, hard sci-fi sort of approach, which is just different in its own way in this world of sort of popular, like sort of science fantasy and and sort of, you know, the small sad sort of way that geopolitics would probably play out even if we did leave the planet oh and it's depressing but also sort of realistic in a way that i find interesting yeah it's just it's just real enough that you're like yeah this could probably happen yeah yeah, exactly and sort of the adjustments to the human form that happen when you get away from the gravities that you're used to and stuff like that very fascinating oh yeah i will say that the the pigeon english that they speak is really difficult to get my head around in the TV show. When I watch it, I'm kind of like, okay, we're... It's sort of like a mix of like African sling and some other stuff, or at least the accents. And I don't know. That's what I picked up, but I could be wrong. It's a little hard to listen to sometimes. 
just because like the person saying it, I'm like, you, oof, you. I actually have that problem with sort of New Zealand accents and uh, Australian accents and Afrikaans ac- uh, accents in- at large. I don't know why. Those are just tough for me to parse those ones. There was one time when I was in Scotland, I was in the back of a car and like my family immigrated from the United Kingdom to Canada. And I went back thinking like, I'm so Scottish. I'm going to show these Scottish people what's up. And I got into the back of that cab and I could not tell you exactly what he was saying. I think he thought I was slow. I was like, yes, Canada. (laughs) Like he, I don't even know. I eventually just said, like, I need to go to here, please. And he took me to a place and that was it. But I I felt like an absolute idiot. So uh, let's leave that there. (laughs) That Scottish trip there just went so wrong. I was so proud of myself. I was like, I'm going to go back to the motherland and I will be one with the people. And I definitely looked like them. But um, I got there and I was like, yep, Canadian. I'm Canadian. All right. I like it. If you have any books that you would recommend, please let us know on social media. What do you think changed you as a young person? What gave you a different perspective on existence, your existence, your personality, your your sense of self? We mm-hmm. want to hear the books that matter to you. Let us know. You can email us at everyone at dorkmatterspodcast.com. Yeah, that sounds right. We don't use the email address very much. Uh, or hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, yeah. Or our Reddit account, huh? Go up, visit us on Reddit. Yeah. It's uh, Lexi and I and one unknown person right now, but it could be you as well. And uh, let us know. That's right. We're literary. Literary AF. This was the book episode. We done. We out. We out. Thanks for listening to Dork Matters. If you like the podcast, subscribe, give a rating and tell a friend about us. If you are a fellow dork and have a dork issue that you think we need to discuss, tell us on our social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter. You can also check out our original art and other content from Ben and myself. We'd like to say a big thank you to Yabra for the use of our theme song Dance off of their Astral EP, as well as a thank you to Jess Schmidt for producing and editing our podcast. Thanks, Jess. Dork Matters. This podcast is created on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Nations, which includes the Siksiga, the Bigani, and the Gaina. We also acknowledge the Stony Nakoda Nation, Sutena, and Métis Region 3. Dork Matters is a proud member of the Alberta Public Radio Podcast Network. 